0: This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On a small island in the North Atlantic, an experiment is underway to wean an entire nation off oil and gas and move it to a hydrogen economy. In the long run, there's money to be saved and greenhouse gases to be reduced. First though, scientists must overcome a slew of technical and engineering obstacles. But if they succeed, this nation will become a model for the world on how to run on new, clean, and renewable energy. Can the world afford
1: to have the hydrogen project far into the future? Isn't it of great need, even pressing need, for the total global environment to have the hydrogen project as a viable option
0: here now, as quickly as possible? It's the promise of hydrogen, this week on Living on
2: Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Ted and Jennifer Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. The promise of hydrogen is the focus of our coverage this week. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, and it's something of a holy grail when it comes to transportation. It offers a future in which we can use the clean, limitless gas and do away with polluting and finite fossil fuels, and automakers around the world are lining up at the forefront of this technology. They splash ads and glossy magazines promoting the coming age of hydrogen. And they paint a bright world. But this is also a world that's a long ways off. It'll take another 40, perhaps 50 years to figure out how to produce, store, and deliver hydrogen in clean, efficient, and economical ways. But as Living Under Cynthia Graeber reports, One Nation says the time to start is now. And it's putting a lot of money and political capital into the promise of hydrogen. Here's her report.
3: Hi, we need to go to the president's residence.
0: To the president's.
4: uh,
3: Yes, exactly. I hop into a cab on a bitterly cold morning, but the chill is only part of why I'm shivering. I have to admit, I'm a bit nervous. I'm on my way to interview a president, something I've never done before. But the cabbie tells me not to worry.
4: He's good, he's a fair guy.
3: It's a 15 minute drive to the president's compound a cluster of boxy white stone buildings surrounded by a windswept marsh. A
2: few minutes, the president will be ready in five minutes, something like that.
3: The president's assistant greets me at the door, and that's when it hits me. There are no guards here, no metal detectors, no security. Okay, maybe that's not so surprising. It's not the White House after all. I'm here to interview the president of Iceland, an island in the North Atlantic about the size of Kentucky a nation of 290,000 people, out to teach the world a lesson. So let's
1: uh, sit down here, if that's okay with you. Let's see. Okay. Can I offer you uh, tea or coffee or water? Or-
3: Iceland's president, Olafur Ragnar Grimson, is a striking man, tall, stately, and even early on a Saturday morning, impeccably dressed in a blue double-breasted suit. We sit in a room anchored by a huge weathered table, surrounded by books on Icelandic history. To really know this nation, he says, I must understand that the story of creation, the story of how God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh, well, it doesn't really apply here.
1: Because when it came to the creation of Iceland, the Almighty became so fascinated by the possibilities that the creation has continued in this country until this very day with new uh, mountains and new islands and new lava fields and earthquakes and geysers and... So, anytime you visit Iceland, you can actually be a witness to the, to the creation.
3: Today, President Grimson is witness to a new creation in Iceland. His country has pledged to wean itself off imported oil and switch to hydrogen fuel to run its cars, trucks, buses, and vast fishing fleet. It's an ambitious undertaking that could save Iceland millions of dollars a year and cut its greenhouse gas emissions nearly two thirds but President Grimson says beyond the economics and the environment is a matter of national pride.
1: It might sound strange when I say it, but I believe that in the world we now live in, successful foreign policy has to be based not just on military or financial strength. It has to be based on your contribution to the evolution of the good society. And if you can make a meaningful contribution in such a way, your role in the world will be strengthened. We would not now be a formal partner of the United States together with big countries like Great Britain or Germany and Japan and so on if it wasn't for the hydrogen project.
3: What's the role of the government in this hydrogen project?
1: Well, I think what the Icelanders have done, not only the government but also the people, is to open our society up to becoming the testing ground, a kind of a laboratory for the hydrogen future.
3: The plan for Iceland's hydrogen economy was born in a small laboratory here at the University of Iceland in Reykjavik. The father is Bragi Arnason, a ruddy, white-haired
5: gentleman who's called Professor Hydrogen. This is uh, how the major energy system of the humankind might look in the future.
3: Arneson points to a light bulb representing the sun. It shines on a tiny solar panel that collects the energy used to break apart the bonds of hydrogen and oxygen in water. Off to the side, oxygen and hydrogen bubbles rise to the top of two glass tubes.
5: You simply split the water in its components.
3: Hydrogen is not a fuel itself, it's a carrier of energy, in this case carrying solar power to be released in a fuel cell. In fuel cells, hydrogen atoms are split into electrons and protons. A membrane blocks the electrons but lets the protons pass into a chamber where they mix with oxygen to create water. But for these water molecules to be stable, they need the electrons that have been left on the other side of the membrane. And the flow of these electrons to the water molecules through a wire creates an electrical current. Here, it turns a small fan. The only waste from this reaction is water. Fragi Arnason tells me his tiny model is a showcase for the potential of hydrogen to transform the way we use energy. He says it's also a handy PR tool.
5: Well, I put it up two, three years ago. We used it to show reporters and maybe politicians when we need more money.
3: (laughs) When Arnason started pushing his hydrogen economy in 1978... Iceland was phasing out coal in favor of hydropower from the nation's many rivers and geothermal power from the hot water and steam vents that dot this volcanic island. Arnason said these renewable sources could be tapped to provide hydrogen for the nation's vehicles. At first, his theories were met with a shrug. Good idea, people said, but kind of a pipe dream. Then, in the 1990s, breakthroughs in fuel cell technology made hydrogen a serious option. International companies looked to Iceland with its cheap, renewable energy and manageable infrastructure as the perfect testing ground. They called Professor Hydrogen and the island's power brokers took notice.
5: Once I met one minister on the streets downtown. You see, we are very small countries. Everybody knows each other. Then he said to me, there are some good things you are doing. Because these big companies, they were not coming to Iceland just to drink coffee and chat. They must mean some real things, and that is of uh, very great importance. If you are going to succeed with such a process, you need the industry with you, and you need the government. And we have both now.
3: The Consortium of Industry, Government, and Academia charged with implementing the hydrogen economy is called Icelandic New Energy. Jan Björn Skolasan runs the enterprise. Skulasan is a large, personable man with perfect English, an important skill in navigating the international interests involved in this project.
6: Okay.
3: He's driving me to a filling station on the outskirts of Reykjavik, where Iceland's transition to a hydrogen economy is underway.
6: As you can see, this is just a normal filling station. Here you can buy gasoline, diesel, whatever. And then you just, we add this uh, hydrogen part, which is here. <coughs>
3: Skulasan parks at the far end of this full-service complex, past the car wash, the pumps, the convenience store, and the snack bar. He leads me to a large square area with walls of concrete and glass and panels explaining the hydrogen project in Icelandic and English. Inside, there's a large electrolyzer to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, a compressor, and a row of bright blue storage tanks. This facility is unusual for two reasons. It's the world's only hydrogen filling station open to the public and the only one that runs entirely off clean, renewable energy.
6: This station is just connected to the normal water and electricity grid work in Reykjavik, like every other home.
3: And like every other fueling station in Iceland, it's self-serve. Skålsson says the goal is to keep the new technology simple.
6: You just unplug this, you connect it to the car, uh, and then you just uh, push the green button and hydrogen starts uh, going. This is just a standard dispenser, so if a car from from uh, Ford would drive up here today, we could fill it with this dispenser also. So,
3: Well, right now there are no hydrogen cars made by Ford or anyone else in Iceland. So far, it's just three city buses that fill up here. It's the first stage of a five-stage operation. First, trial buses, then trial cars. The plan is to eventually replace all gasoline and diesel vehicles with hydrogen models, but don't hold your breath. Even the optimists here say it will take about 50 years to implement, in part because of one huge technical challenge.
6: How do we store sufficient amount of hydrogen if you need to have hundreds of cars driving through here on a daily basis to refuel?
3: What are the economics of it right now in terms of of the buses?
6: To discuss economies is is almost not relevant. The vehicles are four times more expensive than the uh, normal vehicle. The filling station is much more expensive than in, than a normal gasoline station, and the fuel is much more expensive than diesel fuel today. We are quite convinced that within a very short period of time, uh, the fuel cost will go down, meaning that the same, that the equivalent amount of fuel, will cost the same for hid- as uh, untaxed hydrogen as taxed gasoline, and that means European prices. You in the U.S. of course have almost free gasoline. There goes a hydrogen bus. There's another hydrogen bus. Yeah. So actually we think that's a very important issue that uh, people keep in mind that this is still a research and demonstration phase. Commercialization is still a few years away, so economies are are not there yet.
3: As part of the research project, the hydrogen buses are thoroughly monitored and maintained at a garage just a few hundred feet away from the fueling station.
6: We begin by looking on the roof.
3: Skula leads me up a set of metal stairs to a small platform that looks down on the roof of a hydrogen bus.
6: On the top of the roof here we have nine cylinders with compressed hydrogen gas. Here you have two fuel cell units, then you have fans to uh, remove air, hot air from the fuel cells themselves and so on, uh, but it, it's true. It's uh, bulky, still a bulky system, and uh, but it's, it's. I'm not afraid that we will not be able to compact this in, into a car in the future.
3: You have a lot of really unique, um, a unique setup here in Iceland. You have an amazingly abundant supply of energy, and an incredible supply also of water. Um, and it's a small country, and you don't need many fueling stations, and you don't have a problem with you know, where to put the electrolysis. What do you think about that? I mean, what do, you, what, what do you think when you hear that?
6: A lot of challenges worldwide. And, of course, though the government sees this as a beautiful picture of utilizing hydrogen instead of fossil fuels, I think we always have to keep in mind that we have never, we have not proven yet that this is the, the only solution. Because if it's not going to work in Iceland, it, I, think, I think there's even a lesser chance it will work in other locations.
3: Even in Iceland, a nation that can produce all the hydrogen it needs from renewable and non-polluting sources, there are enormous obstacles to a hydrogen economy. It's still expensive to produce from any source, even more expensive to manufacture vehicles that run on this gas. And, of course, the question of how to store it until it's ready to use whether at the filling station or on a bus or in a car, just how to make fuel delivery efficient and economical remains one of the biggest hurdles to opening the hydrogen highway.
0: In just a minute, we'll visit with the scientists and researchers of Iceland who are crunching the numbers and sputtering molecules of metals to unravel the elusive hydrogen storage mystery. And we'll meet the politicians who support them. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kirkwood, and you're listening to The Promise of Hydrogen. So far in our program, we've heard that Iceland is a country moving to become the first nation to say no to fossil fuels and use vehicles that burn hydrogen without polluting. It's a lofty goal, and many obstacles lie ahead, and perhaps the biggest is storage. You can store hydrogen as a liquid, but it takes too much energy right now to make that process efficient. You can also store hydrogen as a gas, but you'd need a huge tank to get the same range that today's cars get with gasoline. But there's another option: using blocks of metal to absorb, hold and then release hydrogen when needed. They're called metal hydrides, and researchers in Iceland think they may be the answer to the storage dilemma. Living on Earth, Cynthia Graber continues her report on the promise of hydrogen. <laughs> Svein Olafsson
3: and Hannes Jonsson are a couple of problem solvers. Right now they're figuring out how long it's going to take to set up the next experiment they'll conduct in their crowded underground lab here at the University of Iceland in Reykjavik. The answer, at least a few days. These two scientists are taking painstaking measures to find the best metal, or combination of metals, in which to store hydrogen molecules until they're ready to be turned into energy.
4: Okay, hydrogen metal storage is what uh, is very simple In a sense that you have a tank which is filled with metal hydride, and uh, when you apply hydrogen pressure, uh, that hydrogen goes into the metal, and uh, at a certain temperature, uh, there's equilibrium pressure in the tank.
7: One can soak up hydrogen much like uh, a sponge can soak up water, and then by heating it up, the hydrogen uh, is released again.
3: This sounds simple enough, but applying the technology to make cars run is a challenge. Most metals that can store and release hydrogen are too heavy to use in automobiles. And lighter metals that could store hydrogen operate at temperatures too high to be practical. Usually, researchers looking for the perfect hydride heat large amounts of metals, mix them together, and hope this new metal combination will solve the weight and temperature conundrum. But Olafsson prefers to work on the molecular scale with a machine he calls the sputter
4: chamber. So the sample is in in the center here where you can use uh, these shutters to open from the atomic rain of magnesium.
3: The sputterer is a large chrome cylinder with tubes and wires jutting out all over the place. Olafsson places samples of metals in the machine, then bombards them with gas. The gas chips away at the metals, breaking off molecules, which allows him to slowly layer them in the center chamber.
4: Typical run is maybe 15 minutes, so it means that we get, say, about uh, 300 to 500 atomic layers of material.
3: Then Olafsson feeds hydrogen into the chamber and measures how much hydrogen the metal absorbs. He says there are benefits to working on this nanoscale.
4: And that allows me to make very special samples which you cannot get by mixing, say, kilos of metals and try to get new properties. With the method I am using, just thin film growth, I can make, say, a mixture of magnesium, in layers and try to new, uh, get some new structures and uh, Hannes can then try to solve many things for me by his calculations. One can ask
7: sp- uh, questions like, if I want to improve the storage properties of a certain material, let's say magnesium, which elements should I add to it? So as to make the hydrogen come out at a lower temperature and make it come out faster and um, While, of course, these calculations are not perfect, they can help to predict and gain intuition into uh, uh, where to go. Uh, Another thing we can do, of course, with these calculations is to try to understand in in more detail the uh, results that Sveit gets from his experiment.
3: All the number crunching goes on in a room just a few doors down the hall. Hannes Jonsson takes me there. He's obviously proud of his little makeshift computer lab that's packed with rows of grey computers stacked neatly on metal shelves. So
7: this is a cluster of computers. Uh, It's uh, about 130 of them here. And that way we get uh, pretty good computational power. Still, the computers, they run for perhaps a week uh, continuously, uh, just doing one calculation.
3: Hannes Jonsson and Svein Olafsson have been collaborating for a couple of years now on metal hydride research. They lead two of four research groups working on hydrogen at the University of Iceland. They're far from a breakthrough, but Olafsson says he's looking forward to the day when metal hydrides can be built into the very structure of an automobile, and its fuel source, hydrogen, can be fed directly into the car's frame.
4: This is a possibility which has not been tried so far by the car companies. People usually think about hydrogen as just a tank, not, not as a part of, of, of a structural unit of the car.
3: So you have the metal as, if you're looking at research in metal, then the metal, as you're saying, could theoretically be part of the structure of the car. And then when you are pumping, you're actually pumping into your car in general.
4: Yeah. And uh, we can take this idea further to say, okay, the fuels would also be a part of the car.
3: Such a breakthrough would have an enormous impact on the world's auto industry and mean untold dollars for its creator. So as scientists and engineers get closer to developing a commercially viable hydrogen car, Hannes Jonsson says information does not always flow so freely in scientific circles. There are some players
7: that really, you know, play things uh, uh, sort of more secretively and, and, and don't want to uh, disclose so much what they're doing. But uh, we're doing this more as a research project and basic research project. So uh, we see our information and uh, are in collaboration with many other groups. But uh, when it comes to getting some research funds, yes, presumably there is some competition.
3: Sounds like an ex- it's an exciting um, area to be working in right now.
7: Yes, it's uh, it's something very new and uh, uh, many open questions and many things to be done. I think the basic research being done here is going to be very valuable to uh, help spawn off some uh, sort of high-tech, new high-tech companies and uh There are going to be a lot of opportunities for innovation before the hydrogen economy really uh, is in full place.
3: Those opportunities draw American students to the University of Iceland's various hydrogen projects. I met up with two of them, Luis Camargo and Bill Steer, in a small rectangular wooden building near the science lab that's called the Summer House. You can often find them here, poring over their research until the early hours of the morning. It's hard work, and the pace can be excruciatingly slow. But as Steer and Camargo explain, there are benefits to being on the cutting edge of science.
1: It's really good for funding, right? I mean, uh, th- there's there's a problem a lot of times with uh, society that there's some problem, and it, it it gets a lot of media for a little while, so there's a lot of interest. And then, you know, after it's had its moment in the spotlight, it's gone. So the, the backing for funding sometimes only lasts as long as the, the, the public awareness, right? So... So it's, in that way, it's, it's a good thing that it's, you know, it's something that's, that everybody's on, on a lot of people's mind.
0: I've worked in some companies in the past that the projects were a bit more controversial, such as genetically modified crops. And, uh, but it's really nice to know that you can put yourself forth to something that pretty much everybody agrees is a good thing. So it's
3: nice. It's definitely nice. These students say they enjoy working on the hydrogen project, and look forward to the contribution to society it may make. Oh, and there's other reasons why young Americans might enjoy spending time in Iceland.
4: Uh, My name is Siri Daumar. And my name is uh, Laura. Yes. We Uh, are the hottest uh, chicks on the place, you know.
3: Um, It's two in the morning, but the night has just begun for patrons of Vegamot, one of Iceland's popular nightclubs, a place where people come to grind up against one another on the packed dance floor. Iceland has earned a reputation for its party scene, attracting travelers from around the world. And for a small island, Iceland exports more than its share of popular music through acts like Björk and Guskus. And there are Icelanders who are betting that their nation's next big export could be hydrogen.
4: I tend to look at it as a, you know, one of the long, long-term investments in my portfolio.
3: Gunnar Orn Gunnarsson manages the new business venture fund, which provides seed money for startups in Iceland. He has about 70 companies in his portfolio, from biotech to fashion. He says he doesn't know if Iceland's hydrogen project will ever produce products or services for export, but he believes Iceland will be able to market its knowledge about hydrogen.
4: If we will be able to start up a real a commercial society with hydrogen, uh, in the near future hopefully, where we will have a big uh, car fleet and we will have tank station. And infrastructure and, and all those problems that will be related to this, that will mean that a lot of other cities around the globe, when they will start to think in this direction, they will have to, they will maybe make a shortcut by coming to us and say, how did you do
6: this?
3: Jan Bjorn Skolasan, head of Icelandic New Energy, hopes Iceland will be able to answer that question not just when it comes to cars and buses.
6: Well, we're down at the Reykjavik harbor. Uh This is, of of course, uh, one of the biggest harbors in Iceland, and uh, one of the biggest users of fossil fuels in in the country is the fishing fleet.
3: Skulasan stands by a row of trawlers docked in the harbor. They range in size from a small blue vessel that might go out to sea for a few days to 300-ton trawlers that stay for weeks. Iceland's seafood is known the world over. The nation exports around 2 million tons a year, accounting for about 70% of its gross domestic product but this fishing fleet runs on imported and expensive diesel fuel and is responsible for a third of the island's greenhouse gas emissions.
6: Fishes, of course, uh, has been the groundwork for the economy of Iceland for a very long time. And that's one of the locations where we think we can apply hydrogen if you want to become a hydrogen society, is to have uh, the fishing fleet running on clean energy carrier like hydrogen.
3: Iceland was the first country to discuss the need for converting its fishing fleet to running off hydrogen. Soon after, a number of maritime nations joined the effort. But it won't be easy. Skoulesen says hydrogen fuel cells for trawlers will have to overcome a whole new set of problems.
6: There's a lot of salt in the atmosphere, which is not very good for fuel cells. Uh, you, boats don't come into harbor every day, and like, like buses and cars and vehicles and so on, they, they can go to the same refueling station every day. But uh, ships are out at sea for a few days or up to many, many weeks.
3: Once again, the hydrogen problem comes down to storage. Storage in metal could work on big trawlers that can carry the load. Another option is to use large and powerful fuel cells, the kind used now at stationary locations. These operate at very high temperatures, but the extra heat could provide steam to power a ship's frozen fish storage. There's also talk of storing natural gas on trawlers and reforming it into hydrogen on board son hopes to have at least some of these solutions worked out so that in a few years he can put a hydrogen demonstration project on a trawler. He says Iceland is the perfect place for this research.
6: We don't build cars in Iceland, we don't build uh, car engines or anything, but we build ships in Iceland. We have a lot of, lot of knowledge about uh, shipping and, 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 and construction of ships. So we are quite convinced that the Icelandic know-how can be applied in the maritime application for hydrogen and therefore that could be a technological development, even create jobs and know-how in Iceland, which could be valuable to other countries. But financing projects currently and, and overcoming technical obstacles is a challenge and, and which we are tackling at the moment.
4: I thank you for the today after við the okkur and og hér 35
3: A few blocks from the harbor, the office of Iceland's prime minister is the site of a protest against the war in Iraq. Eighty percent of Iceland's citizens oppose the war, so their government's decision to back the U.S. is unpopular here. Another unpopular government decision involves its plans to build a huge dam in the middle of a pristine wilderness. The dam would power a new aluminum smelter. Iceland's metal industry emits a third of the nation's greenhouse gases. And because of its smelters, Iceland was granted an exemption to actually increase emissions over 1990 levels in exchange for its signature on the Kyoto Protocol. One vocal opponent of the smelter is the Iceland Nature Conservation Association. The group is also critical of the government's hydrogen project. Spokesperson Arne Finson calls it a diversion, a greenwashing tactic to make the government look like it's doing something about emissions from cars boats and smelters when it's not encouraging the purchase of efficient vehicles, which could reduce emissions now. Finson says hydrogen cars are a good idea, but too far off.
5: We're talking of um, 20 years, maybe, 15, 20 years. And um, like your administration, you know, we can't put off, you know, uh, actions to stop climate change by 10, 15, 20 years under the pretext that we're doing research and have good plans for hydrogen, that's, that's impossible.
3: This criticism does not surprise President Olafur Ragnar Grimson. He doesn't respond to the question of how his government might promote cleaner forms of transportation now. Instead, he looks ahead to the promise that hydrogen
1: holds. And I would ask the question, does or can the world afford to have the hydrogen project far into the future? Isn't it of... Great need, even a pressing need, for the total global environment to have the hydrogen project as a viable option here now, as quickly as possible.
3: President Grimson admits he may not live to see this project completed. It could take 50 years, and it won't be a simple task. As we've heard throughout this story, even if it's possible to build a hydrogen economy here, in a country where it seems a natural fit, it will be a long and costly venture. But Kjellmar Arnason, a member of parliament who's played a major role in pushing the government to back the hydrogen project, tells me that Icelanders have a knack for overcoming technical challenges. They did it once before, weaning themselves off coal and tapping hydro and geothermal power to heat and light their homes and businesses. In the process, Iceland went from being one of the poorest to one of the richest nations in the world even though, Arnason says, some sacrifices had to be made along the way, like not disturbing the elves, ghosts, and other spirits that, according to Icelandic lore,
8: lurk on the landscape. There are roads, even here uh, in the neighborhood of Reykjavík, comes in a straight line, and then all of a sudden it takes a, like a U-turn <laughs> around a small stone, or a big stone, because the experience was when, when they were, the constructors went there with all, all these big uh, bulldozers and uh, machines, they broke down repeatedly. So the conclusion was we have to respect the elves living in there. So that's a, I love this. Uh, that's a part of our culture, our history and the heritage. We believed before we had the light and the electricity, you had to know... But here in the north, nine months we have very dark months, so lights from, from electricity is very important to us. But before we had that, it was this darkness, and in the darkness, all the creativity of uh, imagination came, and we had all kind of, kind of ghosts, elves, and other creatures. In
3: Iceland, imagination can make roads curve and it may help an entire nation say goodbye to oil and gas and find a way to fulfill the promise of hydrogen. Arnason says Iceland will show the world, in particular the United States, what is possible.
8: Two-thirds of our emission here in Iceland is from transportation and fishing. So that's where our sins are, basically. So that's why we want to attack those sins and... um, implement this new technology uh, in transportation and the fishing fleet, and by that reduce our emission down two thirds. So that's a lot. And we will be the leading nation. As you in the States are in other fields, we will be in that. But you
0: can then come up follow up, be our guest.
3: For Living on Earth, I'm Cynthia Graeber in Reykjavik, Iceland.
0: Our special, The Promise of Hydrogen, continues in just a minute with a look at how hydrogen could meet energy needs here in the United States. Keep listening to Living on Earth.
2: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. Ford, presenting the Escape Hybrid, whose full hybrid technology allows it to run on gas or electric power. Full hybrid technology details at fordvehicles.com. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at WKKF.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And our topic this week is the promise of hydrogen. Now, so far in our program, we've heard how the tiny nation of Iceland is positioning itself as a leader in the science, technology, and politics of making the switch from a fossil fuel to a hydrogen economy. But there are projects here in the U.S., too, that are ushering in a revolution in energy use. Small fleets of hydrogen cars are already cruising the streets of Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and San Francisco as test models. And the state of California is preparing a string of fueling stations for hydrogen vehicles. American companies are also manufacturing fuel cells to power not just vehicles, but commercial buildings and homes, even laptops and cell phones. President George W. Bush has noted this coming hydrogen age, saying it could mean cleaner air, fewer greenhouse gases, and less reliance on foreign oil. We import over half of our crude oil stocks from abroad. And sometimes we import that oil from
8: countries that don't particularly like us. It jeopardizes our national security. If we develop hydrogen power to its full potential... We can reduce our demand for oil by over 11 million barrels per day by the year 2040.
0: Joining me to talk about what role hydrogen may play in the nation's energy future is Amory Lovins, who heads the Rocky Mountain Institute, an energy think tank based near Aspen, Colorado. Now tell me, what are the relevant differences, if any, between the United States and Iceland?
9: (laughs) Uh, Just about everything's different. Iceland is a small country with a fairly homogeneous and and ancient culture. It has very rich geothermal and and hydroelectric resources, not very much energy use. But the United States is uh, equally rich in renewable energy resources, even though it's a big, diverse, young country. Certainly we have plenty of opportunity to run all renewable and all hydrogen if we want. Uh, Just the attractive wind power resources in north and south dakota could make as much hydrogen as the world makes now that's about 50 million tons a year and if our highway vehicles were feasibly and profitably efficient that would be enough to run all our highway vehicles that's a big if of course well it's not all that difficult cars and light trucks and even heavy trucks have been designed already with spectacularly greater efficiency the, the round number is that you can save a factor of five or six on your light vehicles and about a factor of two on your heavy vehicles, both very profitably compared to present wholesale gasoline prices.
0: So you're saying that it's pretty easy to get a car that's five or six times as efficient as what people are driving today.
9: Yeah. And, and the, the key is not just to mess with the engine, that only gives you a factor of two or so, but to start by making the car half the weight giving it lower aerodynamic drag and rolling resistance, which is the energy that goes into heating the tires and road. So you reduce by threefold the power needed to run the car. Of course, when you make the car three times more efficient by working on its physics, then whatever you're propelling it with gets three times smaller. This means, for example, that you have a three times smaller fuel cell, if you're going to hydrogen, so you can afford to pay three times as much per kilowatt, so you can adopt fuel cells many years earlier before the prices come way down. Moreover, your storage tanks for the hydrogen get three times smaller, so they fit conveniently and leave plenty of room for people and cargo. Therefore, you don't need any breakthroughs in storage. The tanks on the market will do the job.
0: Well, if ordinary processes can get
9: to uh, such high efficiencies, why should we be thinking about hydrogen at all? Because it's... It's very versatile. You can make it from any hydrocarbon or carbohydrate or any other source of energy, nuclear electricity, renewable electricity, whatever. Generally, making it out of electricity is quite expensive, and we don't do it that way. 96% of our hydrogen is made from natural gas. And that will go on, I think, being the cheap method for a long time. But it's possible, for example, that it may be very cheaply makeable from coal, using coal basically to pull hydrogen out of water and then take the resulting carbon dioxide and uh, keep it from going in the air. And uh, some serious analysts think that that will also be profitable, which would mean a, a long climate-safe future for the coal industry, and they would like that idea. Indeed. Then hydrogen, of course, releases nothing bad when you use it. You can burn it in in an engine or turbine very efficiently companies like boeing and airbus have looked seriously at liquid hydrogen powered airplanes cryoplanes because liquid hydrogen is incredibly light that's why they use it in rockets uh and it, it has about the density of, of uh, medium styrofoam and they they concluded that actually such planes would be feasible and would be safer than uh, today's aircraft in in a crash uh The use in buildings uh, would be typically through fuel cells, which are about twice as efficient as engines, and generally whether it's in a building or a car, a well-designed system for using hydrogen will be two or three times as efficient as using a hydrocarbon fuel to do the same job by normal means. That's why it's worth paying a lot more per unit of energy for hydrogen than for fossil fuels because you can get more work out of it, that means in turn that the hydrogen in our hydrocarbons is probably worth more without the carbon than with the carbon, even if nobody will pay us for keeping the carbon out of the air. So this is actually a, an attractive future for oil and gas companies as well.
0: This is, I think, a point of contention, though. Other folks say, uh, hey, if you use natural gas, oil, or coal to, uh, to generate hydrogen, in fact, you got to do something with this carbon, and the technology is not there yet to keep the carbon out of the
9: environment. That last part is true. There are a number of, of ways uh, being developed for keeping the carbon out of the air. Some are being tested. I wouldn't say any of them is yet proven, but... If you, for example, pipe natural gas through the existing pipes to a gasoline filling station where you've installed a new gizmo called a miniature reformer that will turn it into hydrogen, half extracted from the natural gas, half from steam, and then pump the hydrogen into the tanks of fuel cell cars, Even if you release all that CO2 into the air, it'll be two to six times less CO2 per mile than you're releasing right now in your gasoline car. So it's, I think, a very reasonable uh, stop on the way to the hydrogen economy, and it's a lot more climatically responsible than what we're doing. It will also reduce your fuel cost per mile from roughly $0.05 to something around $0.03. So... Let me see if I understand your vision, then, for the United States. We're going to create hydrogen from fossil fuels. Typically natural gas and, and directly not through electricity. And that this will have less of a
0: burden on uh, such issues as climate change and, and uh, ground-level pollution than the present system, even, say, going with very efficient hybrids.
9: Yes. Now,
0: tell me, looking ahead to this hydrogen economy, how do we move it around? How do we move the hydrogen
9: from one place to another? Typically, we will be producing the hydrogen at the filling station. Uh, Filling stations serving about 90% of our cars have natural gas piped to them right now. If they can get very cheap electricity, which they also can get through the grid, it's conceivable that in some situations they might be able to make competitive electricity that way, but I think that's a lot less likely. Electricity is an awfully expensive way to make hydrogen. So I I think natural gas will continue to rule. This, by the way, will not use more natural gas. It may sound like, gee, we're we're already short of natural gas. How can we also make it into hydrogen without running out faster? Well, the, the reason is that, meanwhile, you would be saving natural gas at power plants displaced by the electricity made by fuel cells, at refineries, where you're using it to make gasoline and diesel fuel displaced by fuel cell vehicles, and in buildings where you're using it in furnaces and boilers displaced by waste heat recovered from fuel cells in the building. So when you work out all the balance, it turns out the hydrogen transition doesn't use more natural gas and may well use less.
0: Okay, let's say for a moment we adopted this plan, that we had the... You say we need ultra-efficient cars, and this is a way that the U.S. gets going with the the hydrogen uh, economy, What would be the infrastructure costs here uh, to do this, say, over the next 35 years? You suggest we could do this?
9: Oh, probably a few tens of billions of dollars. Uh, The the hundreds of billions you commonly hear is clearly exaggerated. It's based on making hydrogen centrally and building a complete new pipeline infrastructure to pipe it everywhere. I don't think there's any reason to do that. It doesn't make sense. You also need to net out the investment you're not making in sustaining the oil-fueling infrastructure. And it turns out that oil is more capital-intensive upstream than gas is, and that the uh, miniature reformers are probably cheaper and more efficient than centralized ones, which was a bit of a surprise. So when you work all this out, you find you're probably saving hundreds of dollars per car, on the whole infrastructure for creating and delivering the fuel into your tank if you choose hydrogen rather than gasoline and do an apples-to-apples comparison of investments required on both sides. Now, some people who work in the energy field
0: don't think that future cars will all run off hydrogen. They say, look... uh, what about getting uh, fuel from biomass, agricultural byproducts, or even crops specifically grown to produce
9: fuel? Mm-hmm. How do you see that fitting into our future energy needs these are These are all competitors, uh, and in fact, in our study winning the oil end game we 're looking at how they all interplay and which ones have how much of the market in the long run and i I think the the answer is is going to be that they'll all be active. Uh, We are already seeing a lot of biodiesel and other biofuels emerging in the market. Those processes are getting steadily better. What they will tend to do, just like what hydrogen will tend to do, is squeeze out oil. Because these alternatives, whether in saving oil or substituting for it, tend to have rising reserves and falling costs, whereas oil tends to have falling reserves and rising costs and the curves are starting to cross. You know, I've been looking at the history of the American whaling industry, and before Drake struck oil in Pennsylvania in 1859, whaling had peaked two years before that, and was already headed down, not because there weren't more people wanting to light their houses, but because the whale oil price had been high enough for long enough to elicit fatal competitors, In this case, kerosene and town gas, both made mainly from coal. And uh, basically, the whalers ran out of markets before they ran out of whales. And the remaining whales were saved by technological innovators and profit-maximizing capitalists who came up with better, cheaper ways to light your house. Now, this came as a great surprise to the whaling industry because apparently nobody had added the stuff up saying, here's what's on the market, here's what's in the lab, and then there's that guy over there, Thomas Edison, who's working on electric light. And if you kind of look at that whole picture, the future for whale oil doesn't look very good. I think we're at that stage now for oil. The things we do with it, we're now realizing we can do better and cheaper without it. These hadn't been added up before, but I think when you do, investors will start reallocating their assets, hedging their bets, and realizing they can make more profit at less risk following an impeccable business case for getting off oil. Talk to me a bit about the
0: politics of the promise of hydrogen. <laughs> President Bush mentioned it in a State of the Union address. Um, some people said uh, that that he was saying this to avoid dealing with other parts of the question of climate change. What's your analysis of the interest of, of the government
9: in hydrogen? It's impossible to tell from the outside, uh, whether the intention of the federal hydrogen program is sincere, and I expect that would depend on which people you're referring to in the program uh, and in in its uh, senior guidance. The, the, the trouble is the, that the administration has this self-inflicted wound of having done its best to block any significant improvement in <clears throat> uh, light vehicle efficiency and and, uh, meanwhile held out the long-term vision of hydrogen. So I think environmental groups have gotten suspicious of the program for several reasons. One is who's in favor of it is not their traditional allies. And second, I'm afraid that the administration's opposition to short-term gains in in fleet efficiency creates the uh, suspicion, worthy or unworthy, that hydrogen is meant as a distraction or a stall rather than a complement to uh, short-term fleet efficiency. A sensible policy would, of course, go for both. We would make fleets dramatically more efficient uh, by accelerating the turnover of the capital stock. We would reward people for buying efficient vehicles and scrapping inefficient ones. And there are ways to do that that are revenue-neutral and very good for the industry. They get to sell more cars, and they'll make more money. Um, Uh, But that isn't how we've approached it. You know, we've had instead the assumption that efficient cars will be unattractive to the buyer because they'll have trade-offs and compromises. So you need government intervention via either mandatory standards or fuel taxes to get people to buy these undesirable vehicles and we've been gridlocked over 20 years on which of those two instruments to choose.
0: Thinking back to where we started, which is looking at the Icelandic experience, what's your grand vision for uh, the U.S. energy economy 30, 40, 50
9: years from now? If we let all ways to uh, save or produce energy compete fairly at honest prices, regardless of whether they're on the supply or demand side, what kind they are, how big they are, and who owns them, we will end up with a very efficient, diverse, dispersed, renewable energy system, and I suspect that hydrogen may well emerge as the dominant energy carrier over the the coming decades.
0: Emory Lovins is the CEO of the Rocky Mountain Institute. Thanks so much for taking this time with me. Thank you. For this week that's living on earth you can learn more about the move towards hydrogen and see pictures from iceland on our website the address is living on earth.org that's living on you can reach us at comments at loe.org once again that's comments at loe.org our postal address is 20 holland street somerville massachusetts 02144 and you can call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988 that's 800-218-9988 Before we go, one last stop on the island of fire and ice. In the center of Iceland's capital Reykjavik, there's a pond where each day young and old alike come to feed the geese, ducks, and assorted fowl that inhabit the waterway. Here's what it all sounds like on a typical morning. Our special, The Promise of Hydrogen, was produced by Cynthia Graver with help from Chris Ballman. Our engineers are Paul Wabrick and now Tara. Special thanks to Ernie Silver and Carl Lindeman. Al Avery runs our website. Allison Dean composed our themes. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
2: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and more. Women of Inspiration speak at the Stonyfield Strong Women programs taking place in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues.
0: This is NPR National Public Radio.